So let us humble ourselves before God and receive Christ. Today is the day of salvation. He alone is the one who connects us to the saving root of God's grace, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, it is a privilege as always to open God's word with you. Pastor Pilgrim is away at Engage Global, uh, also with Logan and Rachel Stoltzfus and Karen Imperato. Uh, They're having a great time. I've heard from them. And we encourage you uh, to go with us on our next trip sometime next year. Uh, It is very much a paradigm shift as we consider missions, as as we consider the Great Commission and our involvement in it, how we all need to play a part in that. It's a fun weekend, very interesting, uh, and so we encourage you to consider that next year when we go. Well, as we begin this morning, let's be reminded, as we need to be, that this is the Word of God that we hold in our hands. God created us, and He created this universe, and as Creator, He has authority to mold His creation for His purposes. One of my favorite pastors, Bishop J.C. Ryle, he said this about the Bible. The Bible is God's merciful provision for sinful man's soul, the map by which he must steer his course if he would attain eternal life. All that we need to know in order to make us peaceful, holy, or happy is there richly contained. Richly contained, it is. God has not stayed silent. He has given us his word, and his word has authority in our lives. It has authority for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And Ryle goes on to say that it doesn't do us any good just to own a Bible. Of course, we need to be in the Bible. We need to be reading it. And as we read it, we need to read it with three things in mind. Number one, we need to read it with prayer. As we begin asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, to give us understanding to mold our hearts, to keep us humble. Number two, we need to read it with reverence. It's very important to give God's word the respect that it is due because it is literally God's word, not man's words. And we have two examples in the Old Testament, two kings, bad example and a good example. King Jehoiakim, when he was presented with God's word, his reaction was to tear it up and to burn it. He hated God's word. But Josiah, King Josiah, he is the other side. What happened when he was presented with God's word? He repented. He tore his clothes in grief. And the the direction of the nation of Israel changed while he was king. We need to read it with reverence. And number three, we need to read it with regularity. When we hide God's word in our hearts, scriptures will rise up. In our hearts during moments of temptation, commands will remind us in seasons of doubt, and promises will come into our heads during moments of discouragement. So may he direct our lives this morning as we are in the middle of Romans 11, and we see the kindness and the severity of God. Well, let's seek the Lord's help together 
as we begin. Lord Jesus, we come to you knowing and asking for your help. We, we need you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us, to give us understanding. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand your word, not just for knowledge's sake, but that you would mold our lives around it. We would be changed by your power as you sanctify us through your word because your word is truth. Please protect me from any error. Please allow me to teach in a way that would be understandable. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you weren't here last Sunday, we started the beginning of Romans 11, and we saw that God has not canceled out Israel. He has not rejected his people. In fact, Paul says, by no means, by no means. In fact, Paul says, God in his grace will always be saving a remnant for himself. And we saw that in the great example of Elijah. Elijah thought he was all alone, but God said, no, Elijah, I still have 7,000 faithful men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in Elijah's time, in Paul's time, and in our time, the Lord is faithful to build his church. It's by his grace alone, through faith alone, and just as we were reminded a moment ago, by Christ alone. And in God's providence, the way of salvation has been opened to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying here, this doesn't mean that God has totally cut off Israel. On the contrary, now more than ever, he desires that the Jew would trust in Christ, would repent. And if the riches of our salvation, if the riches that are offered to the Gentiles makes the Jew jealous and helps open their eyes, then to God be the glory and how wonderful it will be to see the Jew look upon their Savior in repentance. But as we come to verse 13 this morning, Paul is changing his audience. Up until this point, he's been speaking to a mix of Jews and Gentiles, but now he speaks to the Gentiles directly. And this is going to be his audience through the rest of chapter 11. As Pastor Pilgrim mentioned briefly last week, in this section of Romans 9 through 11, we see the blessings of God, but also with warnings. We see blessings and warnings, and we're going to see that as well today. We're going to see the kindness of God and the severity of God. And he's saying, Gentiles, listen up. Listen up. God, in his gracious choice, has saved you. But don't you dare start thinking more highly of yourself than you ought and this is a weighty, serious text, and I think it's going to be sobering for us to go through it. But I also think that we're going to see God's mercy, kindness, and goodness on display as well today. If you would like to take notes, you can take these three points down. Uh, the overarching theme of Romans 9 through 11 is God's sovereign choice. It's about his purposes. So our points carry that theme as well, putting all the focus on God. First, we're going to see God's holy example in verses 13 through 17. Then we're going to see what God's view of pride and unbelief is in verses 18 through 22. And then finally, we're going to see that God's mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. So let's look at verse 13. In verse 13, we see Paul expanding on the thought that he started in verses 11 and 12. But like I said, now he has a new audience. He's speaking directly to the Gentiles. 
And he starts by reiterating, he says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. So he's reiterating the fact that the Lord has called him specifically to the Gentiles. And this is not new. We see this already several times, especially in Acts in in chapters 18, 22, and 26. Paul mentions that. But if you flip over just a page or two to Romans 15, we see it here. We'll, we'll see him explain it just a bit more as he starts to end his letter to the Romans. Look at uh, chapter 15. We'll start in verse 15. He says here, uh, But on some points I have written to you very boldly. We've seen that already by a way of reminder. Because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to who? To the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's his focus. And also in verse 13, in our text here, he says, I magnify my ministry. That means he's taking a special moment to underscore the importance of what God has called him to do with the Gentiles. But even though, He is specially called to the Gentiles. It does not diminish his love and his desire for his countrymen to be saved. We've already seen them very clearly already. So he doesn't make any apologies at all for his intentions, which are really the Lord's intentions, to spark jealousy among the Jews. It says in verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous for the purpose, what's the purpose? And thus save some of them. He was glad to see the Gentiles, of course, come to know the Lord, but he also wanted their salvation to be an instrument for reaching the Jews. God desired to use the Gentiles to be an instrument for reaching the Jews. And verse 14 also brings to mind another passage. We hear Paul speaking of this, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. We have it on the screen. It's small words. But I will read it for you. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. And then to the Gentiles, he says, To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I have become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. May that be our cry as well. We do it all for the sake of the gospel. Well, verse 15, if you look back in our text, verse 15 is similar in structure to verse 12 from last week. Look back up at verse 12 briefly. Paul says, Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now look at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, and of course, that does not mean that everybody will get saved, but that now the gospel is available and the call goes out to every tribe, tongue, and nation. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Life from the dead. 
So both of these verses carry the same idea. In God's providence, the Jews' rejection means wonderful news for the rest of the world. Riches of Christ being reconciled to God. But at the same time, how the more wonderful it will be when God opens the Jewish eyes to their Messiah and they repent and believe. And Paul says that it will be life from the dead. Spiritually dead, now spiritually alive. It's referring to Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the gift of spiritual life. John MacArthur says that the tragedy of their rejection will be surpassed by the glory of their acceptance. The tragedy of their rejection will be surpassed by the glory of their acceptance. And another example that may come to your mind is the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. You remember this passage? Ezekiel says, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed, they were very dry. It was just a sea of hopeless death. But what did God ask Ezekiel? Do you remember? He said, son of man, what? Yes, and can these bones live? Remember that? Can these bones live? And then what happened? What happened is the word of God went out. There was a stirring and a rattling and flesh started to come on these bones and they came back to life. What an amazing work of God. What an amazing picture. And that's in view here. And that's in view in our own salvation, isn't it? Spiritually dead, a sea of death, and yet God has brought us back to life. He desires to do the same thing with the Jewish people. Well, in verse 16, we start to see the metaphor that makes up the bulk of this passage. That the Gentiles, as a wild olive tree was grafted into the beautiful cultivated olive tree that represents God's people. They were that branch, that wild olive branch coming into the beautiful tree that represents God's people. But before Paul gets to that, he has another metaphor to share with us to lead us into the main one. He talks about dough, he talks about first fruits, and he talks about a lump. And in order to understand this, we have to jump back into the Old Testament to Numbers 15, just for a moment. I also have this on the screen for us. Numbers 15 says this. Verse 17, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat of the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution or an offering to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution, like a contribution from the threshing floor. So shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. And so the context of Numbers 15 is laws about sacrifices. And God, through Moses, is telling his people to give their first portion, the first fruits of their labor, back to him. And these loaves would be taken, they would be given to the priests. And the priests, they served as God's representatives. That was their ministry. They served first in the tabernacle and then eventually in the temple. So before any bread could be eaten by a family, 
the first piece of dough would be offered to the Lord. And even though it was just a small portion, just a small portion of the whole lump was offered to the Lord, it all came from him. It all came from the Lord. So that piece of dough was a picture of all that he had provided for them. And we must have this same attitude when we bring our tithes and offerings to the Lord today. This is something that we're trying to instill in our kids, that everything we have has been given to us by the Lord. It's all because of his grace. It all belongs to him. So we can't look at it like, okay, Lord, well, I'll give you this percentage of my money, and then I'm going to keep the rest. See the problem there? My money, and I'll just give you a little bit, but the rest is mine. No, no, it's all his. It's all his. The dough is holy, but the rest of the lump is holy too because it came from the Lord. And here we see Paul going into the rest of the metaphor. He says, if the root is holy, then so are the branches. If the core part of the plant, the root, is holy, then the branches must also be holy. And here we see God's holy example. And what he's saying is, is that if the first fruits and the root of Israel, that root of Israel, it symbolizes the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you, we get this from, if you jump over and just look at verse 28, it says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the forefathers, were made holy and set apart for the Lord, then the branches who represent the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are holy as well. But the question is, okay, how were they made holy? And of course, we know that it was by what? By faith. Exactly right. How was Abraham declared righteous? By his faith. All the branches, the descendants of the patriarch, as they continue in this line of Abraham by faith, they are holy and righteous before the Lord as well. And the Lord reminds his own people of this in Isaiah 51, 1 and 2. He says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, what are you to do? Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one. He was one guy when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So the Lord's saying, do you want righteousness? Are you truly seeking me? Do you want to be a branch on this beautiful olive tree? Then look to Abraham. Follow his holy example by faith. That's how it goes. And as we come to verse 17, we see Paul expanding this metaphor of the olive tree. And he brings in the practice of grafting. So look at verse 17. He says, But if some of the branches were broken off and you... Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. The sentence goes on, but we'll stop right there. Well, olive trees, of course, were a major part of the agricultural system in the Middle East at this time, and it even continues today. Uh, olive trees can live a long time, anywhere from 300 to 600 years. But the oldest olive tree we have a picture of this morning is located on the island of Crete, part of Greece. And this tree has been confirmed to be 2,000 years old. Um, some even think it's older than that. It's incredible. 
as all of trees age, they become less and less productive. And in order to restore productivity, branches from younger trees are grafted on to the older tree. When a branch stopped producing olives, it was cut off. That branch was cut off and a younger one was put in its place. Has anybody here had experience with grafting trees? Yeah, Shane has. Shane. Yeah, it's a very interesting process. Uh, I had the privilege of doing some grafting uh, when I was visiting some of our GSI, GSI missionaries in Indonesia uh, several years ago. Our missionaries there were working with cocoa trees, and they were in uh, the midst of a people group that for a long time had used cocoa as their main export, but uh, they were not using good cultivation practices, and so slowly over time, the trees stopped producing. And our missionaries were able to come in there and reteach uh, some agricultural and some grafting procedures. And so with their work, working alongside the local folks, they were able to bring these cocoa trees back to life in a sense, and they started uh, producing again. And while we were there, they were teaching us how that was happening, and we got to be part of grafting in a new branch onto some of the trees. It was really interesting, and it was exciting to see. So this is the analogy that Paul is using here. Some of the branches of Israel were broken off, and we'll see in a moment they were broken off because of their unbelief. And the Gentiles were grafted in and share in the nourishing root of the faith of Abraham. Uh, Jeremiah 11, 16 and 17 explains what happened well. He says, The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. Unbelief and idol worship. Some of the branches, some of the Israelites were broken off. But notice, notice that it does not say all of them. It does not say all the branches. And that goes back uh, to earlier verses, verse 5 specifically of Romans 11, where it says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And of course, you can go back and read in Ezra and Nehemiah, when the remnant came back to the land, started rebuilding but this remnant continues today as well. And it's also shown by the fact that in the first century, a majority of the early church, many of the new believers were Jews. And these Jewish believers, and includes Jewish believers today who believe, they remain attached to the olive tree. And they join alongside the Gentiles as joint heirs with Christ, following in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham. And Romans 4.11 reminds us that Abraham is the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. He's the father of all who believe. But look how he describes us in verse 17. He says, a wild olive shoot. Well, what's a wild olive branch? Well, it's, it just refers, obviously, to a wild olive tree that was not cultivated and cared for, and so it did not produce any fruit. They were basically worthless giant weeds. That's what they were. And that's an accurate picture of who we were as well before Christ. Aliens and strangers separated from God, bearing no fruit of the Spirit, 
But God did his work, and now we share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. We now share in this amazing salvation that began with the Jews and continues to be offered to all people today. We must not forget this. Remember Romans 1, as Paul begins the book of Romans, what does he say? He says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to who first? The Jew first and also to the Greek. And this helps us. This helps us consider what our attitude should be to our salvation and also to the Jewish people. And so that leads us into our next point. God's view of pride and unbelief. What is it? So in light of the grafting that has taken place, we're going to see four commands in this section. And the first of these four commands, well, in all of them, really, we're going to see how seriously God views the sins of pride, arrogance, and unbelief. Very sobering section. Look at verse 18. He says, If you are sharing in the nourishing root of the olive tree, verse 18, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And so apparently in this time, there were arrogant and prideful Gentiles that were looking at disdain towards the Jews. And so that's the first command. He says, do not be arrogant towards these branches. Other translations say, do not be boastful. Do not have a haughty, prideful view of yourselves and disdain toward the Jews. But secondly, in the same verse, he says, remember, if you find yourself becoming arrogant, remember who you are. Remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Remember where you came from. Remember the grace of God that has been poured out into your life. And this verse alone, verse 18, should remove any hint of anti-Semitism among Christians. It really should. I don't have to remind you that Israel has been persecuted throughout its whole history. And this arrogant thinking leads to an attitude of anti-Semitism. And that has no place, no place among Christians. God did not judge Israel and offer the gospel to the Gentiles, to us, because we were somehow more righteous or more worthy. Not at all. Not at all. And for us to have any arrogance toward the Jewish people would be the reverse of how we often see the Jews acting towards the Gentiles. The Jews were often so arrogant, weren't they? They said, our father is Abraham. We follow the law. We are God's chosen people. Salvation cannot be offered to the Gentiles. They had that attitude. It would be wrong for us to do the reverse and have a prideful attitude toward them. At this point, it would be easy to say, oh, shame, shame on those Jewish people. They rejected God, and so God has rejected them. And now we, as the Gentiles, we are God's chosen people. But Paul warns us of this attitude. Believing Gentiles are blessed by God because they are spiritual descendants of Abraham. We are blessed because we've been grafted in to the covenant of salvation that God made with Abraham, and now he graciously offers to all who believe. And Paul explained this a couple years earlier to the churches in Galatia. Galatians 3, he says this, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
in the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And Paul continues on this same theme in verses 19 and 20. Look there. Verse 19, he says, Then you will say, and he has this imaginary short conversation with a Gentile, then you will say, Well, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. Great job. But do not become proud, but fear. But fear. And this is our third command here continuing not becoming proud, but adding a new element, fear the Lord. And the word fear, of course, as we see it often in God's word, it has the idea of awe and respect and reverence for who the Lord is, but also coupled with a healthy fear that comes from the warnings in the next two verses. Jesus himself said, do not fear man, rather fear the one who casts body and soul into hell. So we have a healthy fear along with reverence and awe and respect for the Lord because God will keep his promises. Sin always has consequences. The command and the subsequent warnings from Paul here show us how seriously God views these things. In fact, the whole counsel of God is filled with warnings on this issue. Here's just a couple for us. Two from the New Testament, two from the Old Testament. Romans 12, 3, we'll get there soon. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's all over Proverbs. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Our prayer for you, friends, is that you will not harden your heart, that you will not be prideful. Ask the Lord to work in your heart in this area, to give you a humble heart. Jeremiah 44.10, they have not humbled themselves even to this day, nor have they feared, nor walked in my law and my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Very serious. Well, from here we move to verses 21 and 22, which show the severe consequences. Look at verse 21 and 22. He said, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And so we have dire, dire warnings here. Don't become so arrogant that you think there will not be consequences if you follow in the same pattern of pride and unbelief. Just as apostasy polluted Israel, apostasy pollutes the church today, which, of course, is mostly made up of Gentiles today. Unfortunately, there's a large portion of heretics who reject the authority and inerrancy of God's word. They reject the deity of Christ. They reject the Trinity. They reject salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone. And the judgment of the Lord will come on the apostate Gentile church, just as it did to the Israelites. 
We have warnings of this in Revelation. Revelation 2, Jesus told the church in Pergamon, so also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans, a heretical cult in that time. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He warned the church in Laodicea that he would spit the lukewarm out of his mouth. And all evidence points to the fact that that happened with those two churches. And it's in verse 22 that we have our fourth command. He says to note, note then the kindness and severity of God. So this means we are to take special care in considering this. We are to think about the awesome kindness of God. It's incredible. And yet at the same time, we are to consider the severity of God, being reminded that he is an all-consuming fire. And when his judgment comes, when it falls on the unbelieving apostates, it will be severe. But the mark, the mark of a true believer is a life that demonstrates humble repentance. A true saving faith is one that continues, as we see here, in his kindness, continues in his kindness. The believer's faith is one that perseveres. And praise be to God that in his kindness, he continually calls us to repentance. He leads us there. And we see scripture after scripture teaching the same thing in many places. Jesus said in John 8, 31, If you abide in my word, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Paul in Colossians 1 says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Friends, that's our prayer for all of us as this church today, that we would not shift from the hope of the gospel, that we would be stable and steadfast in our faith no matter what comes our way because things will come, won't they? Trials, persecutions, sickness, they will come. But what is our response? God is sovereign. God is good. He is always good. We know this to be true. So if something is happening in my life, I know it's for my good and for his glory. Maybe it's to humble me before him. Maybe it's to draw me closer to his goodness. And it's always for our lives to be a a display, be a proclamation to those around us about how good God is. And it's to be a comfort to others, isn't it? You can comfort others who go through the same thing. May we be stable and steadfast. Hebrews 3, exhort one another every day. That's what we're doing here. As long as it is called today. It's today. It is. It's still today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end. And then 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Christopher Ashe says this, the Christian life consists of a kind God leading us sinners to repentance every day of our lives. The moment I begin to think that I no longer need his kindness, that I can manage my own, that I deserve to be his people, I move towards the boundaries of grace and into the dangerous penumbra of incipient pride. 
And I had to look those two words up. <laughs> the, word, the word incipient means something that is going to happen. And penumbra means something that covers, surrounds, or obscures. So, if this is true in your life, you will be headed into pride. And it's going to obscure everything in your life. It's going to blind you. And unfortunately, we see that happen in our sin. But before we leave this section, we need to take note of the last two words of verse 22, where he says, otherwise you too will be cut off. These two words, cut off, they have connections to the Old Testament. R.C. Sproul points out in his commentary that when covenants were made in the Old Testament, they were literally cut. Cutting rituals were associated with uh, some of the most important covenants of the Old Testament. And you can look to Genesis 15, the covenant with Abraham, as an example of this. Of course, we have the sign of the covenant, uh, circumcision, being a literal cutting. And that had two points of significance. First, it was to symbolize being cut out of the world, cut out of the world, separated from the rest of humanity and consecrated to God. But secondly, it signified that failure to keep the terms of the covenant would result in being cut off from God's blessing. And the worst place, the worst thing that could happen was to be cut off from God. But there's a New Testament parallel here as well for us, and we see it in church discipline, something that is so important to the health of the church. When you become a member of a church, you are agreeing agreeing to submit to that discipline. So if you become involved in sin, the church is responsible to lovingly confront you and encourage you to repent. If you refuse to repent, you should not take communion. You should be barred from that as a means of grace to encourage you to come back, to be jealous of that, to come back. But ultimately, if you continue in unrepentance, you are to be put out from the church, cut off from fellowship, and handed over to Satan, apart from the care and support of the church. As 1 Corinthians 5.5 says, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We practice church discipline, and we take it seriously because Jesus commanded it, and we must, must do it, even as hard and as painful as it is. So we are to note the kindness and the severity of God. Praise him for his kindness in calling the Gentiles to repentance, but take these warnings very seriously. Examine yourselves and see if you are in the faith. Those who have saving faith will, by God working in them, persevere until the end. As we sing in in, uh, one of our favorite songs here, Christ, our hope in life and death, we sing, what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing, hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. But as we come to our final point this morning, we see that God has not permanently forever cut off every Israelite from salvation. And we see that God's mercy is more. So look at verse 23. He says, And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. In the beginning of Romans 9, we start out with God's abundant mercy. Romans 9.15 says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
So it does not depend on human will, but on God who has mercy. Verse 23 of Romans 9 says that we are vessels of mercy. And next week, as we finish Romans 11, we're going to see it again. Verse 30 says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but excuse me, now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to obedience that he may have mercy on all. It's all over the place. And here in our passage today, we see God's mercy on display, hand extended, calling them back, even if they repent of their unbelief, do not continue in it, God will graft them into again because he has the power to do it. 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16 gives us a good perspective on this as well. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Amen. The cry has always been, turn to Christ by faith and believe. And there's a promise extended to these Jewish unbelievers. You can be part of God's people once again. And then we see Paul contrast the Gentiles, the wild branches, with the Israelites, the natural branches, in verse 24. Look at 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted something that is contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? Paul is saying, how much easier is it, how very natural is it for the Jew who descends from a nation that once made up the whole tree? It used to be just the Jews made up the whole tree, the people of God. How very natural is it for them to come back, for them to come back to this tree? In a sense, it is easier. John Stott says that there is no room for despair. The Jew could be accepted just like the Gentiles. And next week, we're going to talk more about the salvation of the Jews, talk more about how there is a partial hardening that has come upon them. And then we're going to end Romans chapter 11 in awe of the riches And the awesome power of who God is, the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God. But for today, in what ways can we apply this text? Well, there's been some obvious points of application, hasn't there, as we've been walking through this? We need to rid any attitude of boasting and sinful pride. That's not to mark us as Christians. Paul is very clear about that here. But what else? Well, depending on your view of end times, uh, it can be easy to fall into two ditches when we consider the Jewish people today. And one ditch is to look to the news for prophecy instead of the Bible. Uh, And this person reads any headline about something that is happening in Israel and tries to figure out where that fits. They try to force it in the Bible. Maybe this means that. Maybe that means this. And this person also elevates Israel very, very high on a pedestal, saying that Israel can do no wrong, the country is great, and anyone who has a critical, uh, any kind of critical thinking view of Israel's policies is to be condemned. 
But the other ditch is to totally deny that there is any hope for Israel, that God has rejected them forever and we should treat them like any other pagan nation or even shame them because they rejected their Messiah. Neither of these ditches are in line with God's word. And Christopher Ash, he has some helpful points on how we should treat the Jewish people today. And so this is part of our application. First to the Christian Jew. We should be grateful and affirm them as having greater privileges than those of us who are Gentile Christians. And he says that the privileges they have, in a sense, are natural to them, while the privileges that we have come to enjoy in Christ are a wonderful surprise. A wonderful surprise. Remember, we were the huge weed that was grafted in. And then to the non-Christian Jew, we ought to relate in gratitude and love, however hostile some of them may be towards Jesus Christ. We should love them, pray for them, and seek to support gospel work that commends to them Jesus as their Messiah, the Messiah of Old Testament promise. And there's also an overarching point of application for us as well, and it comes from verse 18. And so our third application point this morning is to pray for a heart of humility. Ask the Lord to work in your heart. Those words in verse 18, those two words, support you, support you, those words should humble us because we have no room to stand without Christ. We need to be supported. And because we need to be supported, there is no room for boasting. As Christians, the Lord has opened our eyes to the truth that we were weak, lost, sinful, helpless, dead in trespasses and sins. The Lord has woken us up from our stupor of self-sufficiency to the reality of dependence, complete dependence upon the grace of God. Friends, we cannot boast in the face of Israel. If you are anti-Semitic and proud, you have forgotten who you are. Or perhaps you are not who you say you are. So let us humble ourselves before God and receive Christ. Today is the day of salvation. He alone is the one who connects us to the saving root of God's grace, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want to end with Isaiah 66 because it's a clear picture of who dwells with God in heaven. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. The Lord is up in heaven, and he says, who's with me here? The humble. I'm with the humble. Let's pray together. And I'm going to be praying from Psalm 25, verses 11 through 14, as we close. Lord, we come to you this morning asking for your name's sake, O Lord, that you would pardon our guilt, for it is great. Lord, we desire, be, we desire to be men and women who fear you. And when we do, you will instruct us in the way that we should go. Our souls, Lord, will abide in well-being, and our offspring shall be blessed. 
Lord, we know that friendship with you is for those who fear you. And when we are friends with you, when we fear you, Lord, you make known to us your ways, your covenants. Lord, may our eyes be ever towards you. And Lord, we know that you will pluck our feet out of the net. Lord, what a privilege it's been to study your word this morning. As sobering as it is this morning, as we've been warned about our attitude of pride, arrogance, unbelief, not to be boastful, Lord, we thank you that even, even though we still struggle with pride in various ways, that we can come to the cross, that we can receive this mercy that is so clearly presented here in these chapters, receive mercy in our time of need. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness of these things and know that you do forgive us. And so we rejoice today that you are the one that supports us. Lord, that you will hold us fast. Even when our faith may waver and fail, you hold us fast. When the tempter will prevail, you hold us fast. We know, Lord, we can never keep our hold through life's fearful path. For our love is often cold. Still, you hold us fast. Lord, we ask that you would grow us in this. Give us opportunities this week to share your love, grace, and mercy with those around us. And may we even, if we have opportunities with Jewish folks in our area, give us a fresh perspective on who they are, Lord, and how you desire to save them. May we treat them with the dignity and worth that you give all of us by being created in your image, Lord. And we ask that you would save many Jews, Lord. Call them back to yourself. May they look upon their Savior and repent. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.